Heavenly Father, we do come before you recognizing that this indeed is true, that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's why we have such great hope when we come to you with our requests and with our needs. And this morning we come with a need to see you clearer than we did yesterday, to hear from you more so than we have in the past, Lord. We ask that you would continue to shape our hearts so that they, they reflect your image. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we get to take, uh, we're, we're pausing between our Second Peter, which we finished, and our new series, which we're going to start uh, looking at the book of Mark with Advent, to give thanks. It makes sense since it's the week of Thanksgiving. So we're going to look at a passage from 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5. It's verses 16 through 18. It's a very short passage. I'll, I'll invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is God's Word. Uh, have a seat. So I told you that was short. <laughs> Makes up for all those times I have you stand for so long, but anyway. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very helpful passage when you think about Thanksgiving, and I was, I was, I was thinking about uh, what are some of the benefits of giving thanks, and, and the benefits are many. I don't think we fully comprehend how, how uh, impactful just the act of giving thanks can be, and I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate this by some of the, the uh, stories that I've read, and, and a familiar one came to mind, it's, it's one I've I've, I've told you before, and if you're a Tolkien fan, I'm sure you're well familiar with it, uh, from his book, The Lord of the Rings. And if you're not familiar with that story, it's kind of the story of this uh, band of fellowship that's, that has this, this uh, thing, this ring, which is the, made by this powerful evil being who's trying to find it, who lost it. And as soon as he gains it, he will conquer the whole world. And they know they have it, and they've set out to try and destroy it before he can find it. But his power is growing, growing. His, his gloom and darkness is spreading throughout all of the world. And they are, they are forcing all, facing all kinds of forces. They try to find uh, the place that it was forged in the volcano that is the hottest, the only place that it can be destroyed. And as this fellowship faces challenges, they begin to break apart and, and go separate ways until there are only two left. And they're in the heart of the enemy territory and they're feeling the weight of the oppression of the enemy. They're, they're seeing the clouds and the darkness and the gloom just weighing heavily upon them. And it, it seems as though there is nothing left but despair. And in one of those, those special moments, one of the two companions who's making this journey looks up and he sees a slight break in the clouds above and a beam of light shoots through, and he is reminded that there is, as, as the writer says, there is light and high beauty forever beyond the reach of shadow. And it's just that momentary grasp that gives them hope to know that while all they can see and feel is the doom and the gloom and the darkness and the weightiness, there is something beautiful that lies beyond that can never be put out by the, the doom and the gloom and the darkness. And I think about that, and you think, well, that seeing that shaft of light 
is kind of like the act of giving thanks. When you are in a time of your own personal darkness and frustration, weightiness and gloom, at a time when you feel like doing nothing but holing up in your house, perhaps not even getting out of bed, just feeling the weight of life and despair, wanting to give up, thinking that you're all alone, that there's nothing left to do, that everyone has forgotten you, perhaps the Lord Himself has forgotten you. It is the act of giving thanks that reminds you that there is something above the gloom and the despair that you feel. And it's something that we have to train ourselves to do. You know, just the act of giving thanks is, is a helpful reminder. I mean, if you're, if you're in a negative state of mind and you're just wanting to complain about all the things going wrong in the world and you just pause to give thanks, you realize it's really hard to give thanks for something and complain about it at the same time. So it, it is a necessary, it is a good corrective just on that. But I do think also of that shaft of light and be reminded of the wonder of the, and the goodness and the brightness of God's glory and grace, we have to train ourselves to give thanks in such a way. And I think that's what Paul is helping his, the church to do. He's encouraging them by these three particular verbs, these actions that we are to take. This practice is something that you are going to engage in that's going to help you remember that there is a great God that stands above all the hard things that you are going to face in life. Now, you may not be facing those right now, not this morning, and some of you might be. I know holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, can tend to remind people of, uh, of uh, loved ones that have been lost, uh, things they don't have anymore. Sometimes it is this, the, the holidays that bring about the greatest sense of despair in people's life, and, and maybe you're facing that this morning, so you need an immediate sense of this message. Others of you may not be facing that today, but there will be moments, there will be times in your future when you will. And now is the time to train yourself to know how it is to give thanks that I know how to see that shaft of light that still exists, that's out there. So we do that, we train ourselves. It's kind of like, I think about the, the training that we really needed when we went to the Davis Mountains as, as a men's group, we're wanting to look at the stars in the sky. And for many of us, we're thinking, oh, it's going to be great. We're going to go out there. There's not going to be any moonlight. There's not going to be any light pollution. We'll be able to see all the stars. And we did. We got out there. and We looked up at all the stars. But we have no idea what we're seeing, at least some of us, because we have no training on what we're looking at. You know, uh, Mifflin did. He's the one who knows the stars and brought his telescope. But the rest of us, you know, it's just a pretty sky, but we don't really understand the significance of all these constellations and, and how they've played a role throughout history. So, learning how to give thanks is not just the act of giving thanks, it's learning the art of training ourselves to see the wonders that exist in the universe that are beyond the reach of the oppression and the weight and the curse that we feel every day. So, that's what we're seeing in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. So, I want, I want to walk you through how we do this, that we see simply this in this act, that God is good and able to steer you through any darkness. That's ultimately what these, this passage is about. God is good and able to steer you through any darkness. So the first thing that we see in this series of action verbs that we are called to take is to rejoice. Rejoice always. It's kind of an interesting command if you think about that. It, it, in some ways it could be sounding like be happy. 
right? Make yourself feel a certain way, and we all know that you can't, you can't really do that. Emotions are something that follow other things. They're not something that you can cause yourself to simply feel. Go, be happy. Have you ever tried to, uh, to tell someone that who's just really struggling or they're really frustrated and you just tell them, calm down, does it work? doesn't work at all. It just aggravates the situation, right? You might as well throw gasoline on that fire because it's not going to work. Same thing, if somebody's frustrated and despairing, just tell them, well, just be happy. It doesn't, it doesn't work. You can't do that. So, what is Paul exactly saying here when he says, rejoice always? And there are a couple of clues that will help us, and they come in the broader context of the letter, specifically the section and these final instructions uh, uh, where he's talked about after uh, talking about the day of the Lord. And in these final instructions, he's talking about the way that you are to, to uh, live with one another as a body, as a whole. You're to encourage one another, you're to uh, support one another, you are to admonish the idle, for example, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So it's this context of living within the body. And not only that, the context of living, living within the church, the church bodies per se, but it's also we see acts that are specific to times of corporate worship. So, for example, greet each other with a holy kiss. That's something you would do when you would get, gather together as a body. Read this letter aloud. That's something that you would do with the body. The rejoice always, in other words, reflects of what we see throughout the book of the Psalms, which are the Old Testament book of worship, as, as you will which are calling the congregation to come together and sing praises to the Lord. You know, sing to the Lord a new song. Shout aloud for God, our Creator. You know, that's the kind of thing that Paul is saying. He's saying, look, rejoice always. I'm calling you to come together as a people and express the joy that comes from knowing God. Now, that doesn't mean just come and, you know, shout, oh, I'm happy. It means you're reflecting upon the things that are worthy of praise. Rejoice always. Bring your praise to the Lord always. Sing a new song to the Lord always. Come together. And there's two aspects of that. One, when you come together in the Old Testament, for example, in the corporate Old Testament, we look at that, the book of worship that they use in the book of Psalms, we see them reflecting upon something that is far beyond their, per, their own personal experience. And I, I know there's this temptation when you come to worship to think about, I'm going to give praise for the things that are personally going on in my life that are good. And that's good to do. I'm not saying don't do that. But when you're coming together as a corporate body, you're reflecting upon the things that God has done in the midst of His, His body, His church, His people. And it's a much bigger picture than just you personally. I mean, as you look at the tense of each one of these verbs in this particular string, they're not, you don't really get this in the English, but in the Greek, these are, these are plural actions. These are not instructions for you as an individual to privately take. These are instructions for you as a corporate body to take together. So when you do that, and if you think about yourself being in that moment of despair, moment of frustration, moment of feeling heavy oppression, when you're doing this as a body, you're remembering that there is, I am part of something that's far bigger than just me and what I'm experiencing. I'm not alone. I belong to this family. I belong to this group. And this group, this family, has a story. It has a testimony to what God has been doing. 
So, for example, when you think about going, and we're going to look at the Psalms a little bit to see an example of this. When you go back to the Psalms and you see what's going on, for example, Psalm 105 reminds us that as believers, as, as Christians, those who have put their faith in God, that we are children of a promise. He reminds us that we are, or He tells us of Abraham, who was called out to become a blessing to the world and inherit a kingdom. So, the first thing we see that we are a people that have been given a promise from the Lord. We have been given a promise that we're going to be His people, belong uniquely to Him from all the other people of the world. We will belong to God. We will be engaged in a specific relationship with God. He has made specific promises to us through whom we will be the means of blessing the world. And so we reflect upon that. It's hard to do that when you're just thinking about your own individual situation, but when you realize I'm part of a grander story, and this is part of that story. And by the way, when you're reading the Psalms, it's, I know it's easy for us to, when we, anytime we're reading, for example, instructions of what the, the Old Testament saints were supposed to do when they gathered together to worship, and we read all these stories, to us it looks like it all happened yesterday to them right? They're, they're, they're talking about things that they've personally experienced, but that's not the case. Many of these psalms are written hundreds of years after the activities they're talking about. So, as they themselves are called to reflect upon that we're children of Abraham, none of them personally had ever met Abraham because Abraham had lived, even from their perspective, hundreds, perhaps some, in some cases thousands of years before they did. So, even they are reflecting upon ancient history. Why would they do that? because it was part of their story. It's helping them understand who they are. So, they would go read this, Psalm 105, for example. Or Psalm 78, for example, that talks about the story of how they went from being Abraham's descendants who had received this promise to live in a land that God would give them to be the means of blessing the whole world to all of a sudden experiencing trouble, a famine in the land, having to go to Egypt where there is food. And while they are taken care of for a time, Eventually, they become enslaved, and for 400 years, they find themselves in slavery and bondage to a pagan king, and here they are crying out for a deliverer. And we read about this in the Psalms, reflecting upon this is part of their story, that God, when they cried out for a deliverer, God sent a deliverer. He sent Moses, who went to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. This is what the Lord says. And you know the story. Pharaoh says, no, God brings the plagues including the final plague, which was the, the killing of the firstborn son. And as all the people in the land were to experience this firstborn death, the Israelites were excluded because they were given unique instructions to take a lamb, slaughter the lamb, take the blood, and paint it on the doorpost so that when that angel of death came by, when he saw the blood, he would pass over them. And as that happened, the people were told to finally flee the Pharaoh says, go, and they go, and Moses leads them out of the promised land, out of this slavery of what they had only known, slavery to serve gods that were not their God. And as he leads them out of this slavery, he leads them specifically to somewhere, to Mount Sinai, where he himself would meet them. And in Exodus 19, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So, we realize part of that story is to rescue us from our slavery, which is our situation without God, to 
a very particular place where we are with God. We are with God. And even then, he, he leads them through the wilderness. You know the story. He leads them to the wilderness, to the border of the promised land. They send spies into the land. They find out that it's filled with giants, and they're terrified. And some of them are wanting to go back to Egypt. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? And God is angry with them, and He sends them back to the wilderness to wander 40 years that they might learn to trust Him. And interesting how He does that. He He's causing them to wander in a wilderness that has no source of food whatsoever. So they're literally having to depend upon God for their daily bread, their daily manna, as He has it appear on the ground every day. Until they get back to the promised land, 40 years have passed, and Joshua, who takes the mantle of leadership from Moses, leads them across the Jordan River into the land, and they begin to conquer God's enemies and occupy the land. This is all their story. Remember, this, even the people who went into the promised land long ago, they didn't, had not personally met Abraham. It was ancient history to them, but yet it was part of their story. And as they're in the land, they, they, they remember God and they forget God. They remember God and they forget God. He raises up leaders to take care of them and rescue them, and they go back to forgetting God. Until finally, he raises up a king after his own heart who comes, is introduced to the, to the people as he's still a boy, as he goes up against the great champion of the Philistines, the giant Goliath. Goliath is shouting his chants, his taunts to Israel. And David, who hears it, who's just a boy, says, who is this that taunts the Lord of hosts? And he goes before the king saw at the time and says, send me, I, I will go. And he goes with nothing more than a stone and a sling and kills this giant, taking his own sword and cutting off his head. The Philistines run and flee, and it's the symbol of God through His King conquering all of His people's enemies, ushering in a time when they would know peace and prosperity under the just uh, leadership of the next king, Solomon, David's son. It's the high point of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament under Solomon. This is all their story. This is all telling the story of what God is doing to make a people for Himself, rescuing them out of, giving them a promise, rescuing them out of slavery, bringing them from that place of slavery into His own presence, providing them with a king who can conquer their enemies and usher in a time of peace. And this is what we are to see when we come into the corporate worship, we are reflecting upon this story, which is our story. Now, you don't get that every week. You got that today, but you don't get that every week, that whole story, which is why it's important that we notice the second part of that, rejoice always. This is to be the continual practice to be engaged in corporate worship. Because one week you may get Psalm 78, the next week you may get Psalm 105, the next week you're getting another portion. And it's only when you make a regular habit of coming do you find the whole picture, that you see this as your story and you understand the whole story. Now, even, at the, even after David and Solomon, we find that the kingdom still failed to continue to follow the Lord, and so he sent them out into exile. And it was while they were in exile that the prophet spoke about a new covenant that God would make covenant that was, would be better than the other one. And this brings us to the entrance of Jesus into the world. Jesus, when He brought His disciples together at that last supper, 
and he's, and he's where they're celebrating the Passover, and he pours the cup of wine, and he says, he says, this cup is the new covenant that all those prophets have spoken about, and it's being secured by my blood, which he was about to shed on the cross. And all of a sudden, this Jesus figure in, in history gives us a new lens through which we can understand all of those Old Testament stories. If you're familiar with that story after his resurrection, he's, he's making some various appearances, appearances. He makes one appearance to a couple of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're talking about the events that have just happened, and Jesus is not recognized by them, so he's, he's asking them, well, tell me what happened. And they said, well, this Jesus figure, whom we all thought was the Messiah, well, he was just crucified. But some people have told us that he's been raised from the dead, and we don't know what to think. And it's at that point that we, we read this interesting account from Jesus himself in Luke 24. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So we are reminded that all of those stories that we've already known, now we see them through the lens that Jesus gives us to see they were all pointing to the work that God would do in His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, Abraham came and a promise was given that through him and his descendants, all the nations of the world would find their blessing, would be blessed. Jesus is the one through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. We find as Moses leads the people out of slavery, that slavery is a reflection of what our lives are like before we knew the Lord. All we could do was be enslaved to the gods of this world, these gods that promised to give us life, to give us joy, to give us happiness, and we pursued them because it's all we could do. But Jesus comes and calls us away from those false wells, those waterless springs, to drink from the well that He will give us that wells up to eternal life. So we read these things. We see how these point us to Him that while Moses led the people to God's presence that was revealed to them in His character written on stone tablets, Jesus comes that He might write His law on human hearts. While Moses was leading them to the presence of God, Jesus is the presence of God. You see. And while David conquered the great enemy of the people and Goliath, Jesus conquered the greater enemy, which was death itself. And while Solomon ushered in a time of great peace and prosperity, we are pointed forward to when Jesus returns and He will usher in a new heavens and a new earth, where the curse will finally and completely be lifted. There will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, no more suffering, and we will rule alongside Christ Himself. So we have this story available to us, but we have to train ourselves to see it, and we do that by hearkening the call to rejoice always, to come together as a corporate body, as a habit, that we might hear the whole story of God, because it is our story, so that when you're in that moment of despair, and all you want to do is lay in bed and do nothing and think that you're alone and your situation is unique, you hear this story and realize it isn't alone. It isn't isolated. I am part of something bigger than myself. 
And it's this act of rejoicing, of coming into corporate worship and reflecting upon the things that God has done that are worthy of worship that we rejoice about. Secondly, what's the second one? Rejoice always, verse 17, pray without ceasing. This is another one of those interesting verses. You think, how do I do that? Does that mean I'm just constantly to be in this conversation with God? It's like, well, kind of. But remember, it's in the corporate corporate, uh, commands. This idea that when you are coming together corporately, that you are before the Lord, and it is a time of prayer. When we come together on Sunday morning, if you'll notice, we are engaging in a full hour, however long it takes, of prayer. It's why we have a call to worship, and we're going through the Lord's Prayer. We read it responsibly. We are in conversation, in dialogue with God Himself. We're to pray without ceasing. There's another implication of that, too, when you think about without ceasing. If we take that literally, we're to pray without ceasing, that means we are in the presence of God. We are in, the com- we are in communication with God when? All, all the time, Right? Now, that, that says something about the kind of relationship you are to have with the Lord, doesn't it? Because we have all kinds of relationship in this world. I mean, you think about the different kinds of relationship you have. If you're a teacher, you have a relationship with your students, but it's a very transactional relationship, right? You have them for a certain period of the day, and you're tasked, you relate with them as their teacher, not as their friend, not as their parent not as their spouse, not as anything else. That's what you are. If you get in trouble, you go before the judge. We have a very specific relationship with the judge. <laughs> Probably not one that you want to have, right? So, you have different kinds of relationship. If you have customers or clients, you have a specific relationship with your customer and clients. If you're, if you're an employee, you have a specific relationship with your employer, and while you engage in that relationship, there are parameters to it, but it's very limited. There are some relationships that are broader than those. You think about the relationship you might have with a good friend. A good friend you may talk to more often. You might share things that are going on in your life. It's not as much transactional as much it is, it is relational. Or your spouse, the ultimate intimate relationship that you get to experience and enjoy which is no wonder why that's the relationship that Paul talks about to compare the relationship that you have with Christ. This is the most intimate of all relationships in which you are, for, you are united together. He's saying, look, pray without ceasing means you have a relationship with the Lord that has no bounds. Through all the things that you're going through in life, whether it's relating with your, your boss, relating with your client, relating with your teacher, relating with your student, relation with your spouse or your child, the Lord Himself is involved. It is an ultimate, intimate relationship. And that's important because I think there is a temptation to make our relationship with God a transactional relationship. This idea that, well, I'm going to live my life as I want during the week, but as long as I take Sunday morning to come before the Lord and confess my sins... He takes that act, and it's a transaction. He grants me forgiveness because I've come and done the act. It's sad that I think a lot of the Roman Catholic practice has become that way. Even the coming of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist as they call it, is a a form of earning grace for the sins that you've, you've experienced or committed throughout the week. When we come to the Lord's Supper, that's not what it is at all. We call it 
communion for a reason. Because it's a time when we are communing because of the relationship we have with the Lord. It's not transactional, it's relational. It's an expression, how, what is this relationship built upon? It's built upon the love of God for us demonstrated in His Son and His blood that was poured out. To pray without ceasing is pointing you to the kind of relationship that you are to have with God the Father. To rejoice always is encouragement to remember, to be engaged in the regular activity of corporate worship where we are reflecting upon the wonders and the glory and the goodness of God, which is the grand story of our redemption. And lastly, the last one, give thanks verse 18, in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's, that can be a hard thing because sometimes we're in circumstances that we don't want to be in. <laughs> so, what does it mean if we're to give thanks for those circumstances? It is to recognize something about the nature of God Himself. We're asking, is God in control or not? And if he's in control, to what degree is he in control? Is he in control even of my personal circumstances? Because the only thing that you can conclude if you're giving thanks is to recognize that somehow these circumstances that I find myself in today, God has brought about in his sovereign plan. Doesn't mean they're going to be pleasant, it doesn't mean you're going to enjoy them, but it does mean that somehow God has brought it into your life for a purpose that's bringing redemption about. Somehow it is bringing about this grand plan of redemption. So it's a call to give thanks, to recognize this is just not about poor me, this is about the greater me that somehow necessitates what I'm experiencing today. So you recognize that God absolutely is in control. So these commands that He's giving us, remember, we have to train ourselves. How do we see our life unfolding before the Lord? How do we see every circumstance that we face God bringing about because He is in the business of accomplishing our ultimate redemption? How do I train myself to do that? When I find myself in despair alone, isolated, depressed, not wanting to do anything else. How do I learn to see that shaft of light that reminds me that there is light and high beauty beyond it? Well, I have to train myself by rejoicing always, by praying without ceasing, by giving thanks in all circumstances. And I love this last phrase. I'll just end with this. This is the will of God for you. In Christ Jesus. You ever wonder what is the will of God for me? What is the will of God for me? You know, you think about that when you're trying to decide what job to pursue, what career path to go along, you know, who to marry, all those big important questions. We think, well, what is God's will? And, and you're looking in the Bible, what well, doesn't there's no there's no woman's name written here that I should marry. There's no God's will there. But you know what it does say? This is God's will for you. It's right here. It's written right there in black and white. 
What is God's will for you? You wanted to know. Let's give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. Remember, last week we've talked about in 2 Peter, last couple of weeks, God has given you everything necessary that pertains to life of godliness. And much of that involves the practice that you are making every day, every week, and your connection to this corporate body and the remembrance of this grand story of redemption that you are part of. The center of which we see is the work of Jesus Christ, the ultimate demonstration of God's love for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful. We are thankful, Lord. So thankful that you invite us to participate in this time of communion, of closeness, of intimacy with you every week, to rejoice, to reflect upon the, the story that is worthy of praise, which is our story. To pray without ceasing, remembering that we are in an intimate relationship with you that you have bought with your own blood so that we can see that you are so actively engaged in our lives that even the frustrating circumstances, the difficult circumstances that we sometimes find ourselves in, you are orchestrating somehow, some way for our good and for your glory. Help us, Lord, to give thanks all the time, for you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.